There's plenty of text for this. It's just which one to use. Book of Romans, chapter 16. Thank the brethren for the messages. And uh, I pray that the Spirit will drive them home. Because the preacher can't. You know, each one of those verses there in the book of the Revelation, which we've been looking at, says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. There's an urgency from the Lord. He's the one speaking, not John. He's just a penman. There's an urgency from the Lord to hear. It's a pleading, really, from the Lord. You know, I know sometimes in sovereign grace circles, people don't like to use terms like pleading and surrender and things like that, but the Lord pleads with His people. Now, He can make us do things, but that doesn't do away with the fact that He pleads, and He is pleading. Hear me. Listen to what I'm saying. And so, as we think about that, and before I get into my message, a lot of times in preaching... And in hearing preaching, we have other people in mind. What I mean by that is, is as, our, as Brother Stephen said, we, we want to apply that to somebody else. We don't want to take it our, as our own responsibility. And in Revelation, there in those texts, it's personal. It says, he that hath an ear. Well, that presupposes regeneration, doesn't it? It does that. But it's personal. Do you have an ear? And then it says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's to the churches, but it's very personal in those churches, to the members of those churches. Not only to the members of those churches, but to you who are members of the Lord's churches. Not the person next to you, not the person across the auditorium this morning, but it's your message. And so wherever you find yourself, and you should be looking for yourself, where am I in this message? Where do I find myself this morning in the messages that I've heard, the messages last night, the messages that we'll preach tomorrow, uh, later today and tomorrow, where do I fit in those messages? May God help us all to do that. As a matter of fact, He's really the only one that can. Romans chapter 16 and verse 16. Salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, 
and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet, I would have you wise to that which is good and simple concerning evil. Let's pray again. Father, help us as we look at this text and as we study the Word of God together that you might help us see ourselves in the Scriptures as you reveal yourself to us. In your light, Father, cast light upon us as that bright and morning star. In the, in the, in, as you come in your strength and in your revelation, show us ourselves in this text and in other places in the Scripture that we might know thee and know our place before thee. Help us in this vital matter and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Here is a vital warning to all the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having recommended and commended many church members for their faithfulness, the apostle gives a warning about those that cause divisions in and among the churches with different doctrine. Now, there are other places where he talks about those that cause division by their walk. There are other places that talk about, uh, in very specific terms, about who he is he's talking about. Now, in this text, it doesn't say who he's talking about. You, you'll search in vain in this text to find out the individuals that he's mentioned in this text. But what you do find out is the characteristics of those individuals. They are those who deal with doctrine that they had not been taught, that the, the Romans had not been taught, that, that is apostolic doctrine, the doctrine of the New Testament. There was doctrine that they had been, that was foreign to what the Scriptures teach. And it is very broad in this text. Uh, you, I, like I say, you know, you like to look at the text in context, and it's, of course, in context, it's written to those that are at Rome, and, of course, all these books are written in a church setting. Every one of them. Even the pastoral epistles, as we call them, to Timothy and Titus, they're written to not some pastor of some evangelistic association somewhere. They're written to pastors and men who are working in and through the Lord's churches. So if we're faithful to the text, we must come to the text with that in mind. We get that from the text and we go back into the text with that truth. Without that, be, it all crumbles. It really does. Because without that, there aren't people being written to. Uh, whenever you come to passages about pastors, when you come to passages about churches, which are, you know, full in the scriptures there. I mean, the book of Corinth is not written to some, something, some abstract something somewhere. It is written to a body of people. Who, by the way, the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to and brought them out of heathenism through the power of the gospel, brought them out of where they were and says, you, you, you're, you're my testimony, you're, you're my witness of the power of grace, how God worked through me to establish you. They read his epistle, is what he said. So this is not abstract. The warning is broad, and it could be those in the churches, it could be those outside the churches, 
It could be those trying to infiltrate the churches, but the fact remained that they were to be warned and very cautious of those that presented doctrine that was contrary to apostolic doctrine. And that leads us to our subject matter of the dangers of ecumenicalism. Ecumenicalism, very very simply, as we look at it defined, the word ecumenical means general or universal. It, we don't use the word today like that, but that's what it comes out of, out of the, out of the Greek and out of the Latin. It means universal. It would be just the same as saying Catholic. Or universal. You look it up. It means Catholic or universal. And of course, the ecumenical movement is this idea that the universal church has to get together. That the churches in the universal church have to come together. That's the idea of ecumenicalism. And of course, and it's broadened, not only to, to include that, but you know, there are, if you will, degrees of ecumenicalism. Sometimes it is contained among just evangelicals. Sometimes it is broadened uh, to kind of get over the fence and get uh, somebody who, who's a little bit more broad-minded than the evangelicals are and get them in. And then it is broadened even more into Catholicism. And then, of course, then it's even broadened more into, even today, there are those who are trying to, to match up Christianity with uh, Judaism and uh, with the Muslims. So there are, if you will with me, bear with me in this, there are degrees of ecumenicalism. But this verse identifies every degree of it. It really does. It says, now I beseech you, you greet the churches with a holy kiss. Now they greet you. We, we, we have this, our brother preached about love. There should be love and esteem among the brethren. And of course, in context, it is in and through the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, where this is supposed to be on display. But be warned. Be warned. There are those that cause divisions and contraries to the doctrines which you have learned. Somebody was teaching them to them. And it says to avoid them. Ecumenicalism has degrees. It has a great draw. There's a great appeal to ecumenicalism to some degree because there's a broadness of thought and a broadness of, you know, working together for a greater good. As a matter of fact, in the ecumenical movement, what is the big thing today is the, the size of churches. And they're put on display in the thousands and you know, if a church is a small church... Now, I'm not against having big churches. I'm not against having a small church. You know, as a matter of fact, the size of a church in the Lord Jesus Christ's eyes really doesn't matter. It may matter in your eyes as a preacher. Say, well, I don't want to just pastor two or three people. Well, your heart's wrong. Now, I want to see a lot of people saved. Now, that's a good desire. And I, I'd like to see the Lord's church build up. That's a wonderful desire. But if you have an attitude that, well, I, 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 want, I want something bigger and greater and better, then that's something between you and the Lord that you've got to work out. It really is. Ecumenicalism has a great draw. It also has great demands. It demands compromise. It really does. And there are certain subjects that you cannot bring up no matter what degree there is among the ecumenists. 
And of course, as we relate it to the Lord's church, because that's what this conference is about, that is one subject that you cannot preach, that you have to shy away from, that you cannot bring up. As a matter of fact, among the ecumenical, ecumenical movement, you will not be allowed to preach that. The truth of, about the Lord's church. You'll never be able to preach that. As a matter of fact, uh, of course, depending upon what degree of ecumenicalism you get into and who you're, you know, flying around with, there'll be things that uh, you'll never be able to preach for them anyway because you're not big enough for them. And that's just the truth. But if you do, you'll have to compromise doctrinal truth. Ecumenicalism has grave dangers. Now, it has no danger of hurting the truth. And I have great con con uh, consolation in this. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul made it clear in that text that the truth cannot be hurt. Now, Brother Paul, I usually don't correct Brother Paul, but Brother Paul said last night, and I, don't, I, know, I, I think I know what he meant. He said that, you know, if we don't preach these truths, they're going to die. He didn't mean it like that. He meant Landmark Baptists. If they don't preach them, they'll die with her. But the truth won't die. Oh, no, truth doesn't die. As a matter of fact, the truth can't even be hurt. You bear with me on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8 it says, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. The truth, the truth, whatever truth it is, and of course it all resides in Jesus and flows from Jesus, no, no one anywhere, anytime can diminish that which is. Can't do it. It may be diminished in people's minds. It may be diminished in their hearts. They may not understand it. They may fight against it. They may not believe it. They may run it through the ground. But the truth of God's Word, whatever truth that is, because it all resonates from Him, cannot be hurt. Now, you might hurt your testimony in the truth, or you might hurt someone else's testimony in the truth. Or you may misunderstand the truth, but you can't hurt the truth. Ecumenical has, has great uh, grave dangers. There's no danger of defeating the truth of the Lord's church. Did you know that? Do you know why? Because Jesus said the gates of hell should never prevail against it. Amen. That's just the truth. And the devil can try it. Listen, church members can try it. And they do. And inside churches, there are people who diminish the Lord's church and they think that through their actions, somehow convoluted, that they're going to destroy the church. Now, you may destroy the church which you are, where you are, but you're not going to destroy that institution the Lord created. And there will be, when Christ comes back on this earth, one of those Philadelphias. You better be sure to that. Because He's promised it. And Jesus, of course, ultimately will see to it that Ecumenicalism is defeated. Revelation chapter 17, there's a whore there. And she is the embodiment of all that ecumenicalism is. And she falls. 
But I want to look at some dangers of ecumenicalism. First of all, it dishonors the lordship of Jesus Christ. Our brother spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ and his lordship this morning already and what a wonderful thing it is that he preached and what a wonderful thing it is to know that he is the Lord. He's the Lord in his kingdom. He's the king of his kingdom. He has power. He has authority. He has might. And it is his. All authority that we have resides in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the keys. He's given us, you know, copies of those keys, if you will. But he has the master copy. He is the master copy. He himself unlocks the door. But in the book of Matthew, it's going to be preached on later. But I want to use the part of the text that I want to show you something. I do believe that is paramount. Matthew 28 and verse 18 says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now there should be no question among believers that the man Christ Jesus has been exalted to lordship. All power is given unto him. You might scratch your head and say, well, how does Jesus get power? It is a given power, by the way. You'll notice that text says that. It is a derived power. It is a earned power. The man Christ Jesus is the perfect man who worked out a perfect righteousness and proved that. And guess who highly exalted him for that? God did. All right, it's already been mentioned. I'll go there in Philippians chapter 2. The lordship of Jesus Christ was earned through his submission. Now, I don't know how you take that, but that's the idea. I understand the scripture. Now, I know he's the Lord of heaven, but he's the Lord of heaven, and it's proven through his life and through his work. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians chapter 2, we find the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So, well, what in the world does that have to do with the dangers of ecumenical? Does that have everything to do with it? Because he who is Lord tells how he wants his kingdom be operated. He who is Lord tells how he wants his kingdom to be administered. He who is Lord tells the church that he gave the keys to how to operate. You know, he gave them different commissions. They, at first, didn't have a worldwide commission. You know that? The Lord's church did not have a worldwide commission at first. He said, go to the Jew only. And they did it. And they couldn't do some of the things that he taught them to do. And then and, and he said, wait, well, that, you, it's going to take some fasting and prayer to take care of some of these things. And then he comes to our text and he, he broadens the commission, this worldwide commission. But in the book of Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, It's a derived, earned lordship for the man Christ Jesus. 2.5, Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because he was God, right? 
But here's the great mystery. But made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here's the great mystery. God became man and fulfilled all that he did as a man empowered by the Spirit of God. Surrendered to the Father's will. Wherefore? What for? Because he did this thing. And because he did this thing, God did something to him. God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name. Now there's that name. Our brother spoke about the name. Matter of fact, both the brothers spoke about a name. And do you know what the name is that Jesus Christ has? Lord. Now let me, let me show you this. That at the name of Jesus, he, he's given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is who? He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with ecumenicalism? Well, ecumenicalism dishonors the lordship of Jesus Christ. Go back with me, if you will, to my text there in Matthew 28. Jesus integrated surrender to his lordship in and with and through his churches. You think about it with me. Because I am Lord, because I have been given a name which is above every name, which is proved in the resurrection, because of this I have been highly exalted, I have this name, he says, all power is given unto me. You go because of that. Go ye therefore and do this. Peter and the apostles understood and preached this. They didn't get it wrong. And neither should we if we believe apostolic doctrine. See, we, we believe that the churches are built on apostolic doctrine. Now the fact is, is Luther, for instance, may have done some great things. And I don't doubt that he did some great things. But he didn't do what this text says. He just didn't do it. He should have. Whenever he got tired of that Catholic whore, he should have left her and found a Baptist church. And that's just the way it is. But he didn't do that. And to that degree... He denied the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I know among Reformed Baptists and among Reformed people, because I read after them, they emphasize, and rightly so, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the tenets of what we call Reform movement, one of the tenets of the doctrines of grace is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Right? But notice how the Lord inner twines it with his church. It is part of the commission itself. It is an integrated part. 
in Acts chapter 2, Peter and the other apostles understood this and they preached it. In Acts chapter 2, after the Spirit came to the church, by the way, on the day of Pentecost, this wasn't an individual believer thing, it was a church thing. It was the church that was immersed, baptized in the Spirit. The Spirit filled the house, not them, in the, in far, as far as the baptism goes. It filled the house where they were sitting. They were, they were there as the church of Jesus Christ, waiting for His promise, waiting to be empowered, and they were. And then you get Acts 2. You know, people started outside, started saying, well, something's going on over there. Let's see what's going on. And they come in, and Peter preaches this famous message to them. And he concludes this message... Whenever God pricked him in the heart, it says in Acts 2 and verse 32, This Jesus hath God raised up, that's Lordship, whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He, He's the baptizer, Jesus Christ, He hath shed forth this which you now see and hear, which was the Holy Ghost. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, was he made that? That's what the text says. Now when they heard this, man, it did something to them. Maybe our preaching lacks because we don't preach like this. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he lays out a course for them. And this includes baptism, by the way. Don't shy away from this verse because of the Campbellite. but emphasize it in its proper order. Peter said to them, repent. You've done some things that are wrong. Repent of that. You didn't believe that Christ is Lord. You didn't believe that He was the Messiah. You repent of that. You crucified Him. Repent of that. You nailed Him there. Repent of that. And that's all you got to do. And be baptized every one of you. Well, we have already had all this ceremony. Well, no, it doesn't matter. There's an order to this thing. We know this is this is not this this is not elementary doctrine for Baptists. It is, and they need to know that as well. Those outside, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's an order there too. The gift of the Holy Ghost in that text is after baptism. And you, what you have to do, Bereans, is go and find in the Bible where the, where the Holy Ghost is different in regeneration and different in the church. You gotta find that. Cause it is a difference. The Shekinah glory in the Old Testament that resided in the temple was something different even though it's the same glory. In the temple, 
as opposed to outside the temple. There's something different there. And he's not talking about believers individually. He's talking about corporate body. And then he goes on to tell them some other words. Repentance, faith, baptism, church membership, doctrine, and practice are all proofs, all proofs of surrender. Now, it's possible that church members aren't surrendered. Right? I mean, we've been reading about problems and problems and problems and problems, and preachers should preach about the problems in their churches. You got a mandate for that. But I'm certain of this thing. That people who do not submit to the Lord's baptism subvert the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't care what they preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care what they don't see about the Lord Jesus Christ. There are things about the Lord Jesus Christ I don't see. And and when I don't see them, I subvert them as well. Is that honest? But that doesn't mean just because I I'm, I have failures that I should say, well, I have failures and therefore I, because I have failures, it's okay for everybody else to have failures. That's a ploy of the devil. You know what that does in preaching? I'll tell you what, it'll, it'll deaden your preaching because you say, well, if I preach that, I'll be a hypocrite. No, what you need to do is repent of it and then preach it. Right? So it dishonors the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It diminishes the commission because the commission has three legs. Preach the gospel, baptize those that believe the gospel, and then teach them all things. You know, people get it all mixed up. They want to teach them everything first. Or they want to baptize them first. The gospel has its place, and it's a wonderful place, and God puts it in the preeminence. But everything that flows from truth flows from Christ. Baptism is a vital truth. Vital truth. It's not a soul-saving truth, but it is a vital truth. The gospel can be preached without the church. It was done in the Old Testament. And men can preach the gospel without the church. But I'll tell you what. You know one thing that God has designed to preach the gospel? Tell me what it is, folks. Baptism. See, whenever whenever you're preaching the gospel, it should climax in your commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by submitting to what He submitted to. We fail in that. Now, I know we preach Baptist, baptism, and, but we fail. How many times does your message, in pointing to Christ, now we don't get distracted from this, in pointing to Christ, how many times do you conclude your message with the importance that you need to surrender to Christ and follow Him in the, in the waters of baptism? Think about it for a minute. I think about myself, I say, man, I, where am I on this? It displaces biblical unity. I don't have time. But Ephesians 1 and verse 6 is the model for biblical unity. And it's a church model. As a matter of fact, there are two things mentioned there. One body and one baptism that make it a church model. 
in the ecumenists. They displace biblical unity with their brand of unity. It's very subtle. And some of them don't do it intentionally. I mean, I don't think that these guys sit around and say, let's see how we can distort the Scriptures today. I don't believe that. Now, I believe there are some that do that when you get into the extremities of ecumenicalism. I believe that's so. But it's still false doctrine. And displaces biblical unity. And then finally, it devalues and diminishes the Lord's church. It does. Jesus loves his church. And I know, beloved, that sometimes we make too much of the church. We do. But just, listen, just because some brethren make too much of the church doesn't mean that we should make too little of it either. There is a balance, is there not? And that balance is going to be found in love for Christ and have the kind of love for His church that He has for it. And that will keep us on the right path. It will be found in love. Love for Him and love for the brethren. May God help us with these things this, this day. And, and may we find ourselves, wherever we may be. And all of us, in some degree, are in some of these messages. Maybe all of them. May the Lord bless you.